Hello and welcome to Bite Back Chats Books. This week we're turning back the clock to two minutes to midnight, or more specifically the start of the Cold War. It's 1953 and world powers are squaring up in the fight for global dominance. Over the course of the year dictators will die, proxy wars will take place and the development of thermonuclear weaponry becomes ever more important. Here to talk more about it is Roger Hermiston, author of Two Minutes to Midnight. Welcome Roger. Roger Hermiston, welcome to the White Black Virtual Podcast. Delighted to be with you. Well, thank you very much for joining. Um, we're here to talk about your book, Two Minutes to Midnight, which I finished reading at the weekend and was gripped and also surprised, I suppose, that we don't really learn much about the Cold War, I would say, in history classes. People tend to focus more, at least for me, like on the Tudors, like World War II and stuff. But I think it's like this massive and really interesting and intricate like period of time that deserves to be looked at in more detail. But yeah, so let's just get into it and I can ask you all the questions I was hoping to find out more about. Um, But first of all, I'd like to hear a bit more about yourself. So if you could tell me a little bit about you and more specifically what sparked your interest in the Cold War in particular. Well, uh, these days I describe myself as a a writer and a journalist. Um, I was a journalist for 20 odd years. no, 30 years. Um, so I joined the BBC in 1990. I got one or two attachments in radio and television, uh, different programmes. And then I landed a six month contract on the Today programme on BBC Radio 4. And um, I managed to get a full time contract and I stayed there. I stayed there for 20, 18 years actually. Um, but I left in 10 years ago in 2010, I wanted to leave. I wanted to do something else. I always wanted to write books. uh, And I've spent my time since then as a writer. The Cold War, I mean, I'm a child of the Cold War, I guess. I was born in 1957. Um, I'm, you know, contemporary history is my field, really. I'm interested in the 20th century, the second half of the 20th century. I'm not a medievalist, uh, you know, I'm not a, you know, an Anglo-Saxon historian, anything like that. I'm interested in what's been going on really in my lifetime. So I've written one book sort of about the Cold War, George Blake, and I was quite keen to write another one if I could write the right, the right if I could find the right vehicle. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hopefully we are that vehicle. Uh, <laughs> um, out of interest, actually, you said you're a child of the Cold War. Do you remember, like, do you remember intruding into your childhood? Because I know even in the UK, there were kind of like, Cold War drills, weren't they? We had to like wear wellies and and paint the walls white, kind of thing. Yeah, and there were. I sort of vaguely remember the films that they used to. Uh, you know, Panorama would show a banned film, which was what 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 the population could do in the event of a nuclear bomb dropping on the country and all that sort of thing. I mean, in the seventies. So I was eighteen in nineteen seventy five. I sort of, you know, the president of America was what Gerald Ford and. Brezhnev was the, the you know the very grey bureaucratic leader of the leader of the Soviet Union. There was a massive arms race. I think the the Cold War arms race was at its height in the seventies. So yeah, I grew up in all of that, and I I guess there were films and books that more of were coming out that reflected the period. So I was a politics student as well. Um, so it all added up to an interest in politics and the history of the moment and. Um, yeah, I think I've always been keen to come back and take a little longer look at it. And so, 
why did you want to write about 1953 in particular? So there's a quote in your book, which I quite like, that said, uh, stagnation in some areas, quiet revolutions underway in others. This was the fascinating paradox of 1953. Um, was that the reason it interested you or was it was there some some other reason? I sort of came to it by accident because the book that I originally wanted to write was a, a more narrower book about Churchill and uh, his illness, his stroke that he had in the summer of 1953, which always fascinated me um, because Basically, it was, a, it was a massive political and establishment cover-up. No one knew in the country that their prime minister had been on death's door in late June 1953. He'd had a severe stroke. Um, he was predicted to die over the weekend. Um, and it was a deliberately manufactured cover-up by his aides, uh, one or two people in his cabinet, not everyone, and a, a sort of gathering of press barons who he knew very well and who were, if not exactly under his thumb, they were good friends of his. So in this age, in this era of social media, 24-hour uh, news and so forth, nothing like that could have happened because basically no, Churchill did not make it public that he'd had this stroke, this very serious stroke, until 1954, I think until March or April 1954. And although there were lots of rumours flying around, um, they managed to keep it quiet. It was partly helped by the fact that the Parliament had gone into recess in the summer of 1953. Anyway, it was a fascinating story. I mean, one or two sort of novels have been, one novel, good novel has been written about it by a chap called Jonathan Smith. And there was a film, which you may or may not have seen with Michael Gambon playing Churchill about this particular period about Churchill's stroke. So one or two things have been written, but I thought there was more to be written and might it make a book. But I quickly realized it wasn't going to make a book, but it might make a good chapter. Mm. And hopefully when you read the book, uh, chapter seven, which is called The Emergency Government, is all about that. Um, and I think it's uh, it was quite fun writing that. But no, I so I started looking at 1953 and I, I realized what a fascinating year it was you know, in addition to Churchill's stroke, Stalin, you know, the great figure, the, mm. the tyrant Stalin died in March 1953. That was bound to be, um, you know, a very interesting, very difficult moment in the early Cold War, um, taking Stalin out of the equation. The Korean War, which was the first time that, uh, you know, the superpowers, albeit in proxy fashion were opposing each other um, since World War II. That was still going, uh, very much so at the beginning of 1953, no end in sight. And as I looked into it more and more, I realized there were all sorts of fascinating things. I mean, overshadowing it was the nuclear arms race mm. and the development of uh, thermonuclear device, devices by both the Americans and the Soviets. But there are all sorts of other things. And there was a very neat, and this is where the title comes in, there was a very a uh, so, very neat way of sort of encapsulating it. Um, and and it, there was a, a group of scientists, there still is a group of scientists called The Bulletin, and they, they have a magazine called The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. And they came up with this device to measure how dangerous a world we were living in. And they called it the doomsday clock. Um, midnight would be Armageddon. So if we ever got close to midnight, we were in serious trouble for one reason or another. And after the Soviets tested their 
thermonuclear device, the hydrogen bomb in August of 53, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists moved the clock, uh, moved the doomsday clock to two minutes to midnight. And that was the closest it had been to midnight since, uh, since its inception six or seven years earlier. So that was a kind of neat device, a neat title for me and a good way of sort of framing the year to, to sort of illustrate or explain what a tense, interesting, and at times dangerous year it was. Yeah, and it was a fascinating year. In fact, your book is so full, it's almost impossible to be, believe that all of these things happened in the space of 12 months. It is absolutely jam-packed. Um, but just to provide a little bit of, of context then, um, how, far you've touched on this a little bit already but how far had the cold war come by 1953 you're saying it's very much in its infancy like what was the relationship between the us and the ussr and kind of where did britain fit into this this new post-war world where it was no longer a power at all really yeah no that it's it's always interesting actually to to decide when the cold war started and historians debate this was it Churchill made a famous speech talking about the Iron Curtain descending across Europe. That was in March 46. But then most people seem to say, well, 1947, something called the Truman Doctrine, President Truman's um, strategy to deal with Soviet geopolitical domination. That, you know, either way, the Cold War started in 46 or 47. So it was in its infancy. It was six or seven years old. And there'd been one or two um, escalations, as it were. Um, the Berlin blockade in 1947-48, when Stalin mm. tried to prevent um, um, food and, and supplies coming into the Western sectors of Berlin. And really the seminal event ahead of 1953, I think, which explains a lot of the tenseness, the paranoia of 1953, was the uh, Soviets successfully um, testing their own atom bomb in 1949. Now, it hadn't been expected that the Soviets would be able to come up with an atom bomb um, by 1949. So they were two, three, four years ahead of schedule. And this really shocked the West. It shocked America in particular, but it shocked the West. Um, and that sort of led on one thing to another. The, the Korean War, of course, comes a year later. So those are the two events that sort of lead up to 1953. And once the Soviets had the atom bomb in 49, the Americans thought, right, you know, God, we've got to, we've got to do something better. We've got to acquire the super bomb. You know, we've got to get the hydrogen bomb. So that escalated the arms race. So that, we were entering an ever more dangerous period, really. Um, as far as Britain was concerned, we were very much led by America. We were still four square behind America. As you, I think, suggest, the relationship between the two was not as close as it had been in the war when Churchill and Roosevelt um, worked very well together. Um, Britain was basically in debt, hugely in debt to America. Uh, Britain was in a, a period of austerity under the Labour government. Having said all that, um, and America were less inclined to share nuclear secrets with us, um, Attlee's government was very, was very, very determined that Britain should have its own atom bomb. 
So they were working towards that despite the cost. And in fact, in October 1952, we successfully exploded our own um, atom bombs. So there were three nuclear powers by 1953. Um, but of course, we were the lesser one, but we had actually acquired our own atom bomb. Um, so, that, so there we were. At the beginning of 1953, you had a new American president, um, Eisenhower. You had Stalin still in power, but about to die. Um, it was a, a period of change and a period of danger, I think, because of the buildup of the arms race and because of the new personalities who were around. Yeah, definitely. And it is quite sad, I think. In, not, yeah, I guess quite sad in the book to read the passages about the, the change of power from um, to Eisenhower and then kind of Churchill coming into this scene kind of very expectant that America and the UK would work as closely together as ever before and Eisenhower dismissing him as you know basically someone he wants to recreate the Second World War but with the Cold War I thought that was quite um, striking I suppose because of all this you know talk of the special relationship that we still have around today so the Truman Eisenhower handover happens towards the start of 1953. How did that affect the way that the US dealt with the nuclear arms race? Well, um, it, Eisenhower and Dulles, John Foster Dulles was Eisenhower's um, new Secretary of State. Um, he was an interesting character. Of, of, he was a very hawkish Secretary of State. So he wasn't, uh, wasn't going to have any truck with, with, with the Soviet Union. He was going to be very... Um, uh, suspicious of any initiatives that came out of the Kremlin. Um, so you had a, a the first Republican president for 20 years, Eisenhower, um, Dulles, his Secretary of State. Um, you also had an atmosphere, I think, not necessarily which drove their policy making, but you had an atmosphere of um, fear, paranoia um, in America, which was partly um, manufactured or, or made worse by a character called Joe McCarthy, who mm. I spend quite a bit of time on in the book, who was a, actually a junior senator from Wisconsin, but he came to, he came to have a, a, a massive influence on American public opinion for a brief period for, from, you know, 50 to 53, 54. So he's a, he's a big figure in the book and that whole communist menace, particularly the enemy within sort of you know, played 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 a part. Not not necessarily in influencing Eisenhower and Dulles, but it was sort of mood music in the in the background. So they were going to approach the Soviet Union in in a very strict and a very harsh way, I suppose. And there they differed with Churchill, because Churchill was was back in power, very old man, back in power at the age of 76, 77, 78, and Churchill. Once Stalin had died, saw a real opportunity. He thought um, the new people in the Kremlin, we might be able to do business with them, you know. And he embarked on a on a policy of, of called easement in those days. I mean, it's effectively what became détente. We knew as détente twenty or thirty years later. And he wanted to he wanted to have face to face talks with Stalin's successors, with uh, with Malenkov and and the rest of them. And he felt. He could do this. It was his last great project in politics. But Eisenhower and Dulles were having nothing of it at all. And uh, every time Churchill wrote to Eisenhower and said, um, you know, I'm, I'm inclined to write to Mr. Malenkov and say, I'll come to Moscow and 
we can sit down and talk without advisors and people hanging on. And I'm sure we, you know, he wanted to be, it's be like the great conferences of World War II when the big three sat down and mm. basically divided up the world. And Eisenhower wasn't having anything to do with it. And I've got a nice quote here. The relationship between Eisenhower and Churchill um, on the surface is, is very jolly, but actually underneath the surface, um, Eisenhower feels that, you know, Churchill is a man of the past. And Churchill went to see Eisenhower in January 1953, early in January, just before Eisenhower assumed the presidency, and they had some chats there. And Eisenhower came away from these um, meetings with Churchill, and Eisenhower kept a diary. Um, and he wrote about Churchill. He, he, he talked about Churchill wanting to rekindle the special relationship, and he said, he has developed an almost childlike faith that all of the answers are to be found merely in a British-American partnership. Winston is trying to relive the days of World War II. In those days, he had the enjoyable feeling that he and our president, that's Roosevelt, were sitting on some rather Olympian platform with respect to the rest of the world and directing world affairs from that point of vantage. In the present international complexities, any hope of establishing such a relationship is completely fatuous. So that tells you something about what Eisenhower thought about Churchill's approach. He thought he was mm. uh, reliving the glories of the past. And what Eisenhower wanted Churchill to do was to concentrate a bit more on Europe in, in getting the European allies to, 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 to pay a bit more towards Western defense. He was interested in Churchill joining all sorts of new European institutions which were growing up. So. The point I'm making is that it was an uncomfortable relationship in 1953, really, despite surface jollity between Eisenhower and Churchill. Very different approaches. Yeah, absolutely. And then did this approach change over the course of 1953 or not at all? Not really, no. I mean, by the time you get to the end of 1953, and the last chapter of the book is devoted to something called the Bermuda Conference, which you know, Churchill had been desperate to have. This was a meeting of the big three, um, as it were, although uh, the, the third of the three, so you had Eisenhower and Churchill was a, was a French prime minister called Joseph Laniel, and the French prime ministers changed very rapidly at that period of time, and he was gone a couple of weeks, I think, after the Bermuda Conference. But anyway, there you Just were. Just changed, I think. <laughs> yeah. There you were, you had the three, the big three as they were, sat down, um, talking, trying to plot world peace and so forth. But Eisenhower hadn't changed in the course of December 53. He'd taken a look at the, 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 the successes to Stalin and didn't really think they were any better. Churchill was still desperately, even at that stage, trying to persuade him that you know, they should sit down with them and, and, and have a big three conference or Churchill should go to Moscow. But nothing had really changed in the course of 53 on, on that front. Yeah, I mean, plenty else did, to be honest. Uh, in your opinion, what was the most pivotal moment in 1953, perhaps in deciding how the Cold War would lay itself out over the next few decades? Oh, that's a really difficult one. I mean, the, the, I, the most pivotal one, moment of three, I suppose, must be the ending, when well, I say ending, and this is the critical point, really, the um, ceasefire. Um, in the Korean War, because, mm. you know, the Korean War involved all the superpowers, China, 
um, Soviet Union, America, Britain in one way or another. So it finally came to an end in July 1953, um, but it didn't really come to an end because there was an armistice. So that brought the fighting to an end, but there was an armistice and there was a peace conference planned for early 54 in Geneva. Um, but in fact, nothing was settled at Geneva. There was no peace plan. Um, the 38th parallel, which we still have today, remained as the dividing division between North and South Korea. And in fact, you could argue the Korean War has never ended and still goes on today. And you look at what's been happening in the last few years with Trump and, and Kim Jong-un and so forth. And um, the, the Korean War and how it ended in 53 and, or how it didn't end in 53 must be regarded as a, as a pivotal moment. I mean, the other, the other pivotal moment was, I suppose, the Soviets successfully exploding their own H-bomb in August of 1953, which gave them parity with the Americans. Um, I guess though, those, those were the two. But the other thing about 1953, which I found fascinating, is that there are lots of other stories which have resonance or had resonance throughout the next three or four decades. For example, Europe. I mean, mm. you know, we've just been, we've just been through Brexit. Uh, we finally um, exited um, the European Union and so forth. In 1953, there were all sorts of things going on. Um, there was the European coal and steel community. There was an idea for a European political community. And Britain was, Churchill was not keen that Britain should be involved in these and stood aside or Britain and Europe was trying to get Britain to play a bigger part and of course all these arguments go on for the next 30, 40, 50 years and in a sense they all begin to start in 53 and you have other episodes like the Falklands um, comes to a climax in the 1980s with Thatcher but what did Churchill do in 1953? He sent a warship to the Falklands when uh, Deception Island was 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 invaded um, by by a very small group of Argentinians and Chileans. So there's another another story that has resonance. And then there's Iran. Um, there was a coup um, organized by the British and American intelligence services in Iran in 1953, which I'm sure had enormous consequences um, for the next 20, 30, 40 years, and still does today. The mistrust that Iran has of Britain and particularly America. So I had all these stories um, which seemed to almost have their beginnings in 53 and would continue to have great influence on world events, you know, for the next half a century or so. I was even thinking this morning that there was something very Trumpian about Joe McCarthy as well. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that, yeah. Um, different sort of policy platforms, but in terms of demagogues, you know, both very effective in their own way and very effective on American public opinion or, or huge sway of American public opinion. So, you know, for Joe McCarthy in 1953, you could read Donald Trump in 2016, 17, et cetera. So that was the other thing that sort of crept up about 1953, aside from the, the nuclear arms race and the Korean war and Stalin's death, there are these other stories that um, you know seem to have the seem to have the genesis in 1953. Yeah, I mean history goes in circles, doesn't it? Um, 
you can definitely see echoes of the past in pretty much everything that's going on today. Uh, but talking about stories, actually, do you have a favourite story from the book? Because I think mine is probably the H-bomb papers going missing on a train. Yes. Yeah, I think I think that's my favourite. Um, the H-bomb papers, um, I had a, a I, I, I've got a friend um, he, um, in America, he's a, he's a historian of, of nuclear matters called Alex Wellerstein, and uh, he, he manages to acquire through freedom of information all these papers from the FBI and the CIA and, and nuclear authorities and stuff, and he publishes them on his, on his website, and um, he got hold of this story, um, I think a couple of years ago, about a chap called John, John Wheeler, John Archibald Wheeler, who was actually one of the leading proponents and architects of the, of the H-bomb in America. And the it was a story about him losing um, a six-page document, which contained, um, I mean, if you call it the secrets of the H-bomb, it's probably laying it <laughs> on slightly thick, but it did contain material which was obviously severely classified. And, he was traveling on a train from New Jersey to Washington for a conference and he, he lost he, he lost this document and um, there was a massive um, FBI operation to try and recover this six page document um, in the in the, the search the the cabin of, uh, uh, on the train where he where he slept overnight and they, they interviewed all the people on the train tried to trace them and so forth. And then, um, and then Eisenhower's government, who weren't told initially about this, so, so they, they didn't find it, basically. Eisenhower wasn't told about it. When he did, he was absolutely furious, and he was quite, quite apprehensive, quite frightened about it. Um, so I found, uh, I had all these documents, I had the whole FBI set of documents about this hunt for this missing paper, which enabled me to just basically tell the story in enormous detail. And possibly I tell the story in a little bit too much detail in the book because I've got it all there. Um, but it's fascinating. Um, it's, it's like, it's like, you know, it's like reading a thriller, really. It, 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 it could be the plot of a, a spy through. And I say, I say in the book, a little bit tongue in cheek, that 1953 was the year when um, Ian Fleming published the first James Bond book called Casino Royale, which actually doesn't feature anything to do with nuclear theft, but it's the sort of thing that Fleming or another spy writer of the time would just love to have uh, written about this story. Um, so it is my favorite story in the book. I do tell it at length. And you know, the great thing about it is the paper was never discovered. So no one really knows, was it, it was probably just lost somehow, somewhere in the cabin or thereabouts, but there is always the possibility that a Soviet agent got on the train uh, and at some point um, stole the document and uh, whisked it back to Moscow. That's the romantic uh, sort <laughs> of uh, side of the story, but it is, a, it is a very good story. But the serious point was that it did really shock the American administration for a little while which was just getting its feet under the table in, in February uh, 53. And, uh, you know, it, when I read um, the transcript of the National Security Council and Eisenhower was quoted in it as saying, he is, fr I am frightened by what's happened with this. That was sort of, you know, that was quite a, 
an archival moment for me, you know, mm. the president of the state saying, you know, I'm actually frightened by this. So it's it's a good story, yes. I think my favourite moment, uh, to take it back to the more tongue-in-cheek bit, was that the person who lost the papers had actually lost previous documents and had bound okay. one of his books with a paper containing like complex mathematical formulae, which just seems <laughs> absolutely farcical, but <laughs> it's one of those moments that made me chuckle. Yeah, sort of absent-minded professor or something, you know, leaving a, a valuable notebook on a rail on a on an, air, on an in an airport lounge or something. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, it was a good story. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, we've been talking a lot about America, but I think you know, originally you said the inspiration for your book was was Churchill. So just to kind of put the lens back on the UK for a moment, can you talk a little bit about the UK's Cold War culture, the kind of things, um, their approach, I suppose. Um, yeah, to the Cold War, to the arms race, like what was their policy uh, like and how did it differ from America's? Yeah, I, as I, I think I've said so far that, that Churchill, who's prime minister by this stage, uh, 1953, took over in October 1951, is very keen to get back to the special relationship that he had with Roosevelt. Um, so, um, and America is the big power by then. We are, a, you know, we are a lesser power um, and we're very happy to be four square behind America on the whole. We, we, we would welcome their planes to British Air Force base, you know, British Air Force, British Air Force bases um, with, uh, so that when the Soviets if the Soviets ever launched a nuclear attack on, on us with their planes, you know, we could respond from the UK with, in like for like with, with American planes. So, you know, we, we were keen, we, we were keen to stand shoulder to shoulder with America, but we were, I think there were elements of the British political um, and intelligence establishment who were a little bit nervous about America because they felt they might possibly under certain circumstances um, be a little trigger happy. There were differences on that. I mean, in terms of echoes of the past that we were talking about earlier, there was quite a chilling moment in the book that I was reading about um, the UK conducting on Salisbury or near Salisbury Plains, um, effectively gas attacks, gas tests on, on British soldiers, which kind of struck me. I don't think I read about something similar happening in America and it just seems um, a real way of illustrating, I suppose, how, how spooked both Brits and Americans were by this by this this new Soviet threat. Yeah, so we had our own chemical and biological weapons warfare program in 1953, offensive program, although it became more defensive and was eventually scrapped um, later in the 50s. But in in, in 1953, um, Orton Down was very much the uh, the place where all that was going on, and I spend one chapter um, devoted to uh, to a pretty dreadful incident in May 1953 when a, a, a serviceman, an RAF serviceman called Ronald Madison, um, along with others, um, is given a test, um, a, a, a given a nerve agent, sarin, um, and, and, you know, as part of the chemical warfare weapons test. And he dies as a result of it. And um, 
it's a fascinating story, a disturbing story, a fascinating story, because, you know, the government did try and cover that up as well to a very large extent. Um, and so I, I detail that. So, yeah, we had, so we had the atom bomb. Um, we were continuing with chemical and biological testing. Um, so we, you know, it, it was that sort of era, that sort of thing was going on. It's interesting, but back in 1953, they, they were doing these tests on servicemen. And the thing was that they didn't tell them that they were coming to be tested um, for nerve agents. They, they told them that they were coming to do tests to try and help find a cure for the common cold. Um, and once they got there, they were, they, I think it was partly explained what they would be injected with or what would be smeared on their arm. Um, but they were never really told out and out, you know, we have brought you to Porton Dam because we want to, to do a little test on you to see how nerve agents work on you. So it's quite startling to think about that now, but they were doing that at the time. Mm, yeah, it was, it was really quite um, horrible to read. Uh, but then <laughs> moving on quickly from that, let's <laughs> fast forward to the present day, because uh, I wanted to ask you about how far you think we've come since 1953 in terms of our attitude to nuclear weapons. Do you still think that we consider or that people in power consider this to be like the major threat as it were to, to human life? Or do you think that there are now other more dominant threats than nuclear power? Has nuclear power in effect like had its day? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, we've now got nine nuclear, remember at the time there were three we were the newest, there are only three in the nuclear club in 1953. There are now nine, um, America, Russia, UK, France, China, Israel, India, Pakistan, and of course, North Korea in the last mm. few years. So there are nine, so you would think a far more dangerous world, nine countries have now got the bomb. Um, and it's interesting to look at the doomsday clock um, just as a very artificial um, way of looking at the danger that exists in the world. I mean, two minutes to midnight is the title of my book, but in early 2018, the clock moved to two minutes to midnight for the first time since 1953 when uh, Trump and Kim Jong-un were squaring up to each other. So. Um, clearly there was a nuclear threat there um, and it's also interesting to look that to reflect that now um, the doomsday clock is actually at the closest it has ever been to midnight a um, hundred seconds um, and the reason given for that and this this sort of answers your question really the reason given for that is that we now have a uh, according to the the scientists who, who who deal with the doomsday clock, we have we now have a dual existential threat. So we have the the nuclear threat, but we also have climate change. So I think it's the climate change side of things that has brought us a little bit closer. So um, this is the world today. You don't the Cold War has changed. The Cold War has come and gone. Some people would argue we're the Cold War has returned in some respects with, with Putin and the West, but basically the Cold War has come and gone and um, nuclear, the nuclear threat exists. Of course, it exists in the Middle East. 
um, with Israel, and you've got Iran um, they're having to be reined in um, on its uh, on on its bomb program, and you've got Korea. So it's still it's still it's still there. It doesn't seem as quite in your face as it would have been um, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And climate change has become the other big, as I say, existential threat. So you've got the twin threat now. So in a way, it's a, it's a more dangerous world. Add to, that, <laughs> add to that, add to that, just to make everyone exceptionally gloomy, add to that the pandemic we've just had and, and the possibility that other horrific viruses may be around the corner in a couple of years. Not looking good, Chris. Uh, <laughs> 1953 is looking pretty good, actually. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but I think, um, yeah, we don't talk as much about, and, and apart from the Korean, the North Korean um, episodes, which come up periodically, we don't talk as much or think quite as much about, about the nuclear danger, do we, I don't think. No. Well, maybe it'll be back on the radar at some point. It probably will be. It's one of those things that seems to kind of just come around every so often to remind people how dangerous and big a threat it actually is, and then we forget about it again. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. And then, and the next time there's a, uh, you know, an Indian-Pakistan standoff, you know, remember they both got, they both got the atomic bomb. So you know, these things are, are always in the background. Nice and cheery. But yes, there, there is so much more I could ask you about your book. But unfortunately, um, you know, the podcast is only so long. So I think I will um, wrap up by asking you what is one thing you hope people will take away from reading your book, Two Minutes to Midnight? Well, I just hope that it's a really rich story, a really fascinating, compelling story. And I hope it takes people you know, into the cabinet room in Downing Street, into the National Security Council. I hope they get a sense of, um, uh, of what was going on in the corridors of power. I hope they get a sense of place because um, of things we haven't talked about, like the Iran coup or the uprising in East Berlin in, in, in the summer of 53. You know, there's lots of things going on in 53. And I, all I wanted to do, I wanted it to be accepted as as a significant year but i also just basically wanted to tell i wanted to produce a really good piece of non narrative fiction of narrative non-fiction which would be gripping and interesting and a good read and and you know a good piece of popular history i guess and uh, and, and all the characters that are that are in it churchill and eisenhower and oppenheimer and you know it's it's rich in stories and it's rich in characters and if that comes across then that would be great well it certainly did for me and uh, i think it's good that we've not covered all the stories because it gives people some incentive to go and read the book so <laughs> uh, i think <laughs> it's all to the better uh roger thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me vicky thank you very much indeed enjoyed it listening to another Bite Back podcast. If you want to find out more about what unfolded in 1953, why not take a look at Roger's book, Two Minutes to Midnight? It's out now and available on bitebackpublishing.com and all good websites. And don't forget to like and subscribe. Until next time.